past week, I had an opportunity to, um, I was just doing some regular shopping stuff. And as you know, um, this is the time of year where uh, some very uh, kind people spend some time standing outside some of the establishments that we love to go to and they ring a bell. And they've got this little red pot, kettle, whatever you want to call it. And uh, they don't usually say a word. They just sit there and ring the bell. And as I was walking in, okay, as I was walking in, I remember thinking, I wonder what he thinks of me, because I didn't give him any money. I didn't put anything in. I was wondering. How many of you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I wonder what he thinks of me. Did my shopping, bought some stuff, and uh, on the way out, didn't put anything in. <laughs> I just left. And I'm spending all of my time thinking, I wonder... I wonder what he thinks of me. And uh, as I guess I was getting in my car, I just, I couldn't help but think that, uh, truly, he probably doesn't have time to think specific thoughts about all of us, right? And I'm not even saying, man, we should give every time. It's way, it's it's far more interesting than that. I I was mesmerized by the fact that I was really aware of this. And I just can't help but think in light of our text today that, uh, in the last few weeks actually, because these three three texts fit together. I'd never known, maybe this is because this is the first time I've preached verse by verse through Matthew all entirely. I never really noticed how these three stories that we've looked at, so two weeks ago, last week, and this week, how well they fit together. This repeated phrase, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Um, Those of you that want to be great, be, be, be down here. And and those of you that think you're great, God will put you down here. That kind of repeated theme has really kind of hit me, and it links together. And so I couldn't help but then reflect on the fact that um, whatever this guy thinks about me really isn't the issue. Probably, not probably, what's far more important um, and critical is who I am and then what God thinks of me. Um, have, you ever, have you ever wondered, have you ever kind of thought about that question about like God has a thought about you? Like God knows if you're, uh, well, I'm not gonna sing it, but God knows if you're naughty or nice. Who'd sing that song? Uh, God knows these things. God's very aware of it. So he, he, he knows. And the, the part that I find really interesting is that um, he knows so perfectly. Like he wouldn't get it wrong. Like, if you'd be afraid to know what God thinks of you, then you really are hiding from the truth. Because every thought God has about you is truly perfect. And, and therefore, and this is what I wanna, the way I want to approach our text today is kind of with that recognition. That's one of the reasons why we do what we do here in terms of putting opportunities for us to give and to serve. Why do we do that? Well, you know, guilty obligation, no. Why'd we build a couple of houses a few months ago? Actually, it's because who we are. Why, why'd you guys take up coats for Richmond School and those kids in need? Because that's who we are. Oh, because of the need? Oh yeah, there's a need too. Think about this. Oh yeah, you're right, you know, there's gonna be the need. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. And he didn't say, and so therefore, you know what you should do to help the poor? 
The Bible talks more about, if you, if you read it and you pay attention, it talks more about, hey, this is who God is. So if you want to know who God is, God cares for widows and orphans. That's just who he is. He doesn't look at them and go, poor orphans. No, no parents, huh? I wonder how can I can take care of you. No, he naturally loves them and defends them. Oh, look at this widow. Oh, I feel so sorry. No, God's natural inclination is to care for and to defend. It comes first within him. Did you know that? That's how the Bible describes him. And this is the God that we worship. And this is the God that we were made like. And it's really critical, I think, that we, we begin with that foundational truth so the reason why we do Angel Tree and the reason why we, um, we, we do Cooks and Hills and the reason why we do, it's because that's just who we are. And sometimes I need to be reminded because I live in this culture, I don't know if you do as well, but I live in this culture that is absolutely obsessed with pretending we're genuine and authentic people. And I'm real. Like I'm so real and authentic that when I don't feel like doing things, I stick to my selfishness. <laughs> so you're a really bad person, you aren't going to change, and you're going to celebrate it too. Yep. Authentic, right? Think about how messed up that is. The Bible actually says, um, when you don't feel like it, let me remind you who you are. Not just what to do, like who you are. And that's why Jesus talks so much, particularly in, in Matthew's gospel, about a kingdom. It describes the kingdom of God, and this is what the kingdom is. Now, the kingdom, and this is what's interesting, the kingdom isn't just a place. So often when we think of kingdoms and kings, we think of location. Now hear me, location matters. Like you, we, we have to be somewhere. Um, that's why it's critical that we look at like tangible things, like um, physical objects. God didn't make like a pretend world. We're not an idea in his head. We're real, tangible, right? Physical. And when Jesus died and came back from the dead, he didn't actually say, try to touch me. You can't, ha <laughs> I'm now perfect, I'm a, I'm a ghost. What did he say? No, right here, put, put your hand right in here. Like, feel me. Flesh and blood. This is his resurrected body. That's why I genuinely believe that what God made in the beginning, he will make perfect in the end. I believe that's what Revelation describes, to be honest with you. It's not, it's not magical. I don't even think it's that complicated. When God made the world, he didn't go, I could do better if I took away all the physical things like atoms. No, no, no. God says, this is the way I made it, and it's very good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it right again. I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna redeem it. I'm gonna restore it to what it should have been always. It's the kingdom. So the kingdom will have a location, but Jesus says in Luke 17 that you don't go, look, here it is, or look, there it is. It's like somehow it's, a, it's, it's got borders or boundaries. No, he says, for the kingdom of God is, is within you. Because kingdoms are, are, are places where subjects, where servants, are following a king. That's the kingdom of God. Um, I, I just call it church. Not, not that it's the only expression of the kingdom of God, but definitely the church is a response to God's act in Christ in human history. 
And those of us that believe that Jesus is who he says he was and did what God wanted to do, then we join in that by God's amazing invitation, his grace, and now we're part of the kingdom. And so the kingdom of God, Jesus wants us to be clear, or wants, he wants to be clear so that we're, under, or we're aware, and, um, and not only just aware, but like we're living in light of that truth, like that truth looms over us, which is that we're part of a kingdom, that, that, for, that we're servants of a king. And he says it over and over and over again. And, and so these are the two things that we're bringing into this message that the kingdom of God belongs to, and he says this a couple of weeks ago, those people who are unattached. That, that's so difficult for us to do. Whenever, like we just wanna hold on to things forever. Like I just wanna hold on to things. The reason why, um, I think about especially those people that went through the depression. That was a period of time way back in, um, in, in world history, not just in America, but in world history, where people lost a lot of things and those people who lost a lot, who knew what it was like to do with very, very, very little, they became instinctively hoarders. And we're not doing this again. Um, I, I knew of a guy that had an attic full of toilet paper because he's not going without that again. And I'm going, really? Like, you think, like, all of it's going to disappear? Nope, because you should see my attic. No, but you really don't think, like, Walmart carries enough for you? Nope. Okay. Like, why? Because I'm not doing that again. See, we, we attach ourselves to. That, that's, the, that's the lure of money. It gives us the illusion of control and power. And the kingdom is that we know God is the king. And so we have a different attitude about it. I mean, think about Adam and Eve, the, the first couple, when they showed up on the scene, literally, it was like, how oh, I didn't even exist yesterday. But now I exist. Wow. You're very aware that you made none of this. Right? I mean, when you came into an understanding, I don't want to get deep into it, when you came to an understanding of like who you are in the world, you'd already been living in it for a long time. So it's quick to go, that's my mom, and that's my toy, and that's my, I mean, that's one of the first present words you learn, right? Mine. Adam and Eve are going, wow, this is awesome. We didn't make any of this. You and I have the illusion that we did. Kingdom people aren't attached. That's the problem. It's good to enjoy God's, 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 God's wealth that he shared with you. It's, it's good for us to enjoy it and to praise him for it. It's good for us to recognize what it is and to literally freely give it to those in need because we know who the king is. That's what a kingdom person, that, that's kingdom people, that's that whole idea. We're unattached to the things that we have. Job, God gave, God took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm good. That's, that's a kingdom person. The second thing that we learned last week is not only are they unattached, but they're unassuming, particularly of their own goodness. That we don't assume like what we deserve and what is right, that we actually trust not only the provision of the creator, but we trust um, also the prerogative of the creator. That we, we trust in his plan and his purposes, and instead of us always looking around and figuring out who has more and why didn't I get and why don't I have, that literally we, we just, we, we know the heart of the king and we just trust him with all of that. And we just go, wow, isn't it good? Isn't he good? Man, I, so I can celebrate what God gave you even though I didn't get it. Why? Because I, I mean, I, I, he knows what he's doing. Why he gave you those gifts and not me? I mean, he knows what he's doing. So why, why, why should I be jealous? Why should I be angry? Why should I be envious? God knows what he's doing, right? 
when you get mad at somebody else for having something that you don't have, a gift, an ability, or a talent, you know what you're saying? God got it wrong. Is it not? So when God says, don't be jealous and don't be envious, what he's really saying is, like, I didn't make you originally, creation, before, I didn't make you this way. You fell into this way. And all of us on the other side of Adam and Eve, we did. Like, we fell into this. We were born into this mess. I would actually argue that um, I hear a lot of scholars describe Jesus' teaching about the last being first and the first being last as the upside down kingdom. Actually, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to like market my own version of that, but I would actually say, no, it's the right side up. I really believe that God made it right side up. He made us aware of who we are and who he is. That was his intent. And we tripped it up. We turned it upside down. Our father and our original mother, Adam and Eve, they're the ones that turned it upside down. And you and I do not have the ability or the gifts or the talents or the hearts to actually set it straight. So we stay in an upside down world. Think about it. How many of you have literally looked at a globe and going, actually the world feels flat. Think about it. Does the world not feel flat to you? Like, it doesn't matter if I'm on a plane, everything seems down. Now, I know there's some of you that are way smarter than me that can explain to me why we feel that way. I remember actually having to read some articles. I, I mean, I know the world has to be round, it just seems flat to me. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, why are we ever not just kind of hanging off the edge, you know? Like, why are we all feeling like we're standing on the side of a ball? Like, why doesn't that happen? I find that fascinating. And actually, even more than that, I find it revealing. Like, what if you and I know is right side up, is upside down? And what Jesus actually came to do is to set it straight again. Turn your head upside down, and I want you to see the way it was always intended to be. So he speaks very clearly about the kingdom of heaven in terms of who it belongs to. And you'll, you'll see, you'll, 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 maybe you will. Um, I remember going, why is this here? The first section I want to look at beginning in verse 17 of Matthew 20. Why is this here? He's given this big long speech about the last being the first and the first being the last. And then all of a sudden he goes into another prediction of his death, burial, resurrection. Look at verse 17, Okay. So he describes this, look at verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. First time Jerusalem is mentioned as he describes this. He says this in verse 16, verse 21, verse 17, verses 22 and 23. He says it again in Matthew 26, verse 2. He tells the story or the prediction of his death, betrayal, death, burial, and resurrection. Four times. And they never get it. They never get it. Not any of the times do they get it. This is the first time he mentions Jerusalem. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. See, that's what the Gentiles can do. That's what the Romans can do. Um, that's what the establishment can do. They can mock. They can kill. And he will be raised on the third day. Yeah, they didn't expect that one. <laughs> That's not up to them. And Jesus, in the midst of this kingdom language, describes not only what the kingdom, or who the kingdom belongs to, the unattached and the unassuming, he then talks about, like, what is the foundation of the kingdom? 
and the foundation of the kingdom, what makes it right, what turns it right side up again, is actually who he is and what he has done on the cross. And that is foundational. Like us understanding who we are, we have to go back to some kind of point in time, and I believe there are two things. This is why we talk about it over and over here. We need to go back and remember these two powerful truths. Number one, we were made in the image of God, creation. Fall, our abandonment of that, our rebellion against that, our our going against the way God intended, the way God designed But God did not leave us there. And through an event in history, God set us straight, made in the image of God, and then remade in the image of Jesus Christ. And that remaking is right here. Like, let me me tell you what I have to do for you. See, this would change things, right? Imagine I were to describe to you like a, a, a problem that you were in, a difficulty that you, were in, uh, that you had caused and that you were a part of, and it just seemed hopeless. I, mean, let's, let, I even like thinking about it. Let's think about this backwards. Like how bad off were we? How messed up are we? Are you ready for this? It was so bad for us that God had to put on flesh, come down, live a perfect life, which he does, and then be, be betrayed and killed, mocked, all of that stuff, and then raised again. That's how bad we were. You ever thought about it like that? It shows you, look how much God loves you. And you're going, yeah, my mom loves me because I'm cute. Look at how much God loves you. Oh yeah, my kindergarten teacher, she thought I was adorable. That I talked too much, but she really liked me. Your and my situation was so bad that God had to put on flesh, live a perfect life, be betrayed, mocked, ridiculed, flogged, murdered, and God raised him up again. Do you see how that would fundamentally change the way you look at who you are, not what to do. Now now do you see why it makes absolutely no sense to talk about your predicament and my predicament, to talk about what God had to do and say, and that's why you should go to church. That doesn't make sense to me. Like Jesus Christ came and died for me so I gotta go to church? That just seems dumb. It is dumb. It's absolutely ridiculous. If the best or the most clear example of you Responding to the grace that God has given to us is going to church and trying to be good, then you don't get the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. That's why it makes zero sense that what we are talking about and that what we are about as a community of faith is merely an expression of our kindness, giving money to the Salvation Army, helping out at Christmas, buying coats for kids, all of that stuff. If that is the gospel, then woe to us. That's not the gospel. The gospel, according to this text, what grounds us, what unites us, what what settles the issue, what kind of even creates the step one that we can move from is actually what Jesus did for us, not what we do for him. We are not the gospel. We live out the implications of the gospel. 
I, my identity is, I used to always talk about this transformation, but let's remember, like in the book of Revelation, like I'm transformed into what God designed me to be originally. So often when we talk about how broken we are and how messed up we are and the work that God did, we talk about us being transformed into something new. So I used to be this terrible person, but then Jesus transformed me and I turned into a completely different person. That's really not the way the Bible describes it, to be honest with you. Because you were made in the image of God. The transformation that takes place is not you stepping sideways and now putting on an act. Hey, how you doing? My name is Jim, and I go to church. I'm a Christian. Look at my fish on the back of my car. Guess how much I gave to Salvation Army? A five, you know? Like, I'll tell you, if, if that is your understanding, this is kind of who I was, and now this is how I know how to dress and act. Like, that's the hypocrisy that gives the church a bad name. And if that's your life, and well, this is the one thing I love about Facebook, is I can tell a lot more about you in terms of how much you've got a schizophrenic spiritual nature. I just love looking at your Facebook pictures. I can tell. I can see what matters and what, and, and by the way, you can for me too except I'm not really on Facebook, so you'll have to get to know me. But you see what I'm saying here? It's like, this is so many of our view. This was me bad, now I'm completely different. No, 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 what Jesus is describing here is not you transforming into someone completely different. No, but you being redeemed and restored into God designed you to be. And the basis of that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel is all about and the kingdom that he then establishes on that good news. That's what you and I partake in. It's not just what we do. It is what we do, but it's not just what we do. It's who we are. How many of you want to be a part of a church like that? That that's just who we are. So why do you build houses for people? Because it's who we are. Why do you buy coats for it? Because that's who we are. Why do you go on mission trips? Because that's who we are. We live missionally. We, we serve one another. We love one another. We forgive one another. Why? Because God will judge you? Well, he will, but that's who I am. Until you make that step. Um, good news is I'm not the one in charge of your eternal destiny. But I would say one of the ways that you can know that you've actually stepped from darkness into light is when that truly becomes an understanding of who you are. And by the way, you'll still struggle with it. You'll still wish you were more, but it's who you are. And then so Jesus continues on in verse 22. So what does the kingdom of heaven look like for those who are? In verse 22, and I, I think this is the part that's, um, uh, sorry, in verse 20, and this is the part that's kind of interesting. So Jesus has just told this really important line, this, this idea of, of, of him dying and the resurrection. And then the, the, almost the gap in Matthew's gospel needs to be even wider, but it isn't. Matthew is actually arranging this material very intentionally. And then after raised from the third day, after dying a brutal death. And then the mothers of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Jesus, will you do something for me? And like a child who just, will you do whatever I ask? 
Jesus knows better, and so he says to her, what do you want? She says to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Now, now, now before we just throw them all under the bus, truth is, um, this woman may actually be a relative of Jesus. It may be Mary's sister. Maybe. Which means James and John actually have like a kinship to Jesus. And it's not really uncommon. Bathsheba went up to David, hey, can my son have the throne? Jesus has already in chapter 19 described that when his kingdom comes, these disciples will be sitting on thrones ruling over the tribes of Israel. So it's not like this is coming from nowhere. This could be coming very naturally from the teachings of Jesus. But instead of trusting God with how this is going to work, let's kind of, uh, why don't we just get to the front of the line as quick as we can? Let's try to figure out how to become the ones who are the right or at the left. I mean, exactly. How, let me ask you this. How many of you encourage your kids to not try their best, to not try to be the one who bats first or fourth, to not try to be on the start? How many, honey, sweetheart, you need to just try to get on that team and just ride the pine. <laughs> you know what? You got a 24 on your first ACT. I just say we call it good. We don't do that. No, it's about excellence, and it's about we're, we're, we're intuitively drawn. Many of us are intuitively drawn to, to just want a little more. I, I, I would even say a lot of the heat that they take, particularly James and John and their mother, I, I think part of it stands, and I think part of it is just preacher um, exaggeration, actually. Because it's interesting, Jesus doesn't signal them out and say they're bad. Watch how this plays on. Jesus answered, he said, really, the problem is that you asked for it. The problem is you don't know what you're talking about. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I am to drink? They, this is how you know it's James and John. Mark actually has James and John asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, we are able. And he said to them, no, you won't. You have no, no, he actually says, yes, you will. Look at this. You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my Father. Again, the prerogative of God. So what Jesus is ultimately saying here is not what they asked for is a terrible thing. I love that. Are you able to drink from the cup that I'm able to give to you? The cup of suffering? And literally, he's just talked about going to Jerusalem. See how it fits contextually? Are you able to do this? They say we are. Actually, that's true. James is the first apostle killed, beheaded. Acts 13, early in the game. First one, killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. John, if you think that's hard, right, to be the first one to go, I often feel sorry for him. Man, you didn't even get to see, you didn't even get to experience. Wow, you didn't really get to see the Gentile inclusion. I think James would have been excited about that. You wouldn't have got to notice, you wouldn't have seen, you wouldn't have. John got to watch it all. And John's sitting in a prison near the end of his life, and he has just endured and endured and endured. For those of you that feel sorry for, for, for James, think about John. I, I don't know, Kyle called it his imagination. I, I had a professor who used to call it his sanctified imagination. I wonder sometimes if that isn't God's, not just irony, but yeah, you are able to drink. James bears his cross, and John bears his. And like bookends, 
they do pay the price of costing, or they pay the price of what it meant to cost to follow Jesus, and they sacrifice their very lives. And the story continues. What Jesus has complained is not, what you're asking for is bad. You shouldn't want to sit on my right and my left. What he wants to let them understand is even more than just the prerogative of God, he's, he's almost saying, let me tell you, if you really want that, let me tell you how to get there. And fundamentally, it's to know who you are. Like to know who God is and to know who you are, to recognize the difference between the two, and then to embrace, embrace God's plan, God's, God's, God's work in you and through you. Like, are you okay with that? Are you okay with trusting God with the gifts and the abilities that he's given you? People who complain about the time in which they live. I hate living now because America's terrible and, and, and Gen Y are selfish and the millennials don't get it. I hate living. I mean, have you guys heard people talk like this? I hate living now. Hey, take it up with the one who made you live now. I really think, it's, I really think we need to repent of a lot of that complaining. God's the one who ordained all this. Are you okay with that? Are you just gonna act like the world? See, what I love is as he continues and he addresses this, he doesn't just address them. Notice how this continues. So he asks them, will you do it? Or will you be able to do it? They say yes. He says, we're gonna trust God with how this all works out. And then in verse 24, when the 10 heard it, the other 10, they're kind of mad that I guess they beat them to it. They became indignant. I mean, they're highly offended. How dare you ask for that? Jesus called them, all of them, not just James and John. Now we got 12. <laughs> got 12 numbskulls running around. Okay, ever you get over here. Get over here. Before we get into the theme park, let me tell you, I don't want to be chasing you guys. Come on in. I want to talk to you. And he says, get in here. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it will not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And if you want to know how this is true, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, see how this fits with the beginning of the text? And to give his life is a ransom for many. If the kingdom of God is founded on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and our lives and our redeemed and restored identity is based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this is how we now see ourselves. Unattached, unassuming servants. Are you okay with that? Like, is that a little bit of a default for you? Sure, fine, call me a servant. I mean, I'm gonna work as hard as I can to quickly become the boss of this place, but I want, and, and, and the part that really concerns me, actually, is that we've, we've really learned um, in this marketing culture where we are all now mass consumers, we really know how to, even when we're servants, to at least let people know and let, 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 let those around us know like our rights and our expectations and our demands and we miss it. We miss fundamentally what it's about to be a servant. 
because we still have buying power, right? So sure, I'll be a servant, but you know what? I still have some control. When, when, I, when I graduated from high school, I had an opportunity to work for a company, um, a kind of a retail company. And one of the reasons that I liked the company was because they loved the idea of, of good customer service in their particular industry. They loved the idea. That they, they really prided themselves in customer service. And so when I joined this company, I really thought, actually, I like customer service. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, man? I'm here to help you. And it truly was in part, is it not? Like a selling point. Good customer, who doesn't like good customer service? Like man, if you wanna make some money, customer service is awesome. And I guarantee you, that's what the church has picked up over the last 40 or 50 years. A lot of our sermons about being in biblical community and going on mission is really just a customer service pitch, isn't it? If you want to know how we can grow this church, have you guys tried being nicer to your neighbors? Like if you were nicer to your neighbors and you kind of helped them out, we could grow this place. Because after all, at Sunnybrook Christian Church, customer service is priority number one. Have you met our pastor? He's great at it. See, that, that's the world that I, and I, I actually thought it was kind of cool. So I wasn't surprised when, when John, the owner of the company, came to me and said, I was like 18, 19 years old, and said, hey, we want to make you a manager of your own store. And I'm going, I'm 18, I'd do a great job running a store. <laughs> like I, I'm, and I, I got the customer service thing. I got it. I know how to deal with you and to make you leave as though I've listened to you. And, and you'll walk out pleased, a good customer of what I'm trying to sell. Is that how we do church? And by the way, the answer isn't, no, we're gonna make it miserable for everybody. That's not the answer. But here's, here's the issue that I've had to really work through this past week. What if service and being a servant what if we take that as Christians and it just becomes um, like a trait we should work on? Maybe not like church marketing, but like personal development. Have you guys been working on your service? If service becomes a part of your life, you really should become more humble and like a servant. You really, have you tried doing things that are beneath you? That'll really help you with your, it's, think about how like young people that are in high school are trying to pad their resume. What do they need on their resume? Service. Need service on there. I mean, if I'm gonna really try to confuse an employer that I'm a really great person, I gotta get some service on here. Where, where do you get that idea from? My preacher? My parents? See, that's not what Jesus is describing and that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is describing that is something that is far more like intentional and intrinsic and in us. It's not, hey, you need to work on these service pieces and kind of add it to your repertoire. It's like, hey, just let me tell you, just so there's no confusion, like if you've responded to God's grace, like you are a servant. Like it's who you are. I don't wanna hear about like I like it or I don't like it. No, you are a servant. You're a servant of the most high God. You're a servant of the king. You're a subject of his. I'm a subject to no one. Okay, you can choose that too. You should see where that leads, sweetheart. See, that's how Jesus presents this to us. Not, don't have money. Hey, if you're part of the kingdom, you just won't be attached to money. 
You'll just enjoy it and use it for kingdom purposes. You'll get grace. And what he's saying is here, like you'll just, you'll get, you'll get why you wear a towel and you wash feet. You'll just get it. One of the most difficult um, texts is found, it's actually found in, in Luke chapter 17. And look at it, Luke 17, beginning in verse 7. Luke 17, beginning in verse 7. I find this interesting. Jesus, the context here are disciples that cannot fathom forgiving and forgiving and forgiving someone um, because God told them to. No, 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 no. I'm going to decide whether or not I forgive this person or not. And Jesus says, no, actually that's not, you're not being like a kingdom person. You're a servant. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to forgive no matter how difficult this gets. Do you understand me? And so Jesus tells the story like this, because they say, how can we do this? Increase our faith. This is what Jesus actually says. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or, have, or keeping sheep say to him, the servant, when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me, since I'm the boss, prepare supper for me, and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded Verse 10, so also when you have done all that you are commanded, all that God asked us to do, you will say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I mean, I hear that, and there's a part of me that loves it. There's a part of me that goes, man, that is so upside down or actually maybe right side up now that I think about it, but it is so countercultural. Who has ever told you, you just need to admit that you're an unworthy servant and you've just done your duty? And you, has anybody ever told you that? You're probably your mom and dad haven't. I guarantee you that's not how I was taught in school. Now, onward and upward, claiming every little bit I can, scratching, clawing all the way to the top. And then, you know, along the way, how you doing, right? You want to get a little bit of that customer service schmooze, right? And Jesus actually says, no, it's, you've got it completely backwards. You've got it completely wrong. At the very end, you say, I'm nothing but an unworthy servant. Well, I'm just really afraid how this is going to affect young people and their self-esteem. Yeah, you're right. Telling them they're special has fixed that problem. Telling them how important and special they are hasn't bred entitlement into any of us. I would argue we've never tried this. I really would. Because it doesn't say you're nothing. It just says that everything that you have, you didn't get on your own. You're just a child of an amazing king. Oh, I feel sorry for you. No, I don't actually. To be a child of this amazing king sounds pretty stinking awesome. Do you know that? Do you understand the privilege of being a servant of this great God that we serve? I find it fascinating that there is so much um, stress and pressure that is in our world. So many people are worried about dying and just how, what's going to happen in the financial future and we're all going to die and then we're going to be dead but I'm afraid of being, I don't want to live. And, and if you, have you guys noticed everyone's stressed? One of the best ways to deal with stress, I believe, is to just recognize who we are. Paul, who got it, puts it this way. One of my favorite verses in scripture, Acts 20, verse 24. This is a non-stressed person. What does he say? I do not account my life 
of any value, nor as precious, precious to myself. I mean, it's hard to be stressed when that's your attitude about life. I would argue that most of us that are all stressed out is because we think we're more than we are. We're freaking out because we're not getting what we think we deserve. That's where stress comes from. Not all of it, but that's a big part of where it comes from. I don't consider my life as anything. He says this, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And that is God's plan. So this, the sermon actually describes both the art and the science of service. And so here's how I want us to close. I want us to think about the amazing fact that truly service is both an art and a science. Now give me some, give me some room on this. What I mean is like the way we usually talk about art. The idea that it kind of comes naturally and flows from a creative mind, right? Oh, he's an artist naturally. I know it's so much more than that. For those of you that are really gifted in what we label as more of the artistic side of things, there's a lot of work that goes alongside that. But just, just give me the artistic side. There is a sense in which being a servant flows naturally from who we are. That's the art. But there's also a science to service. Jesus put a towel around his waist. He gave his disciples specific things. There is a blocking and tackling and planning. And there are things that we can intentionally do to practice the art of service. So that we can become more of who we already are. I think it's both. Art and science. Remember when I said um, God has an attitude? Um, God has an opinion about you? Well, here's what I want to do. We have a little bit of time, actually, and I promise you'll even get out earlier today, okay? Okay? You'll, you'll get out early. But for the next few minutes, what I would like for you to do is to sit and to reflect on. As we, as we close this part, we're going to have, the next three weeks, we're going to be dealing with some Christmas themes and sermons. But over the last three weeks, we've talked about what it means to be a kingdom person, and I just want you to spend some time thinking and reflecting. Am I unattached? Am I unassuming about grace and grateful? Am I, am I truly like a servant? And I want you to think of the places where you find yourself. I want to think about the context in which you find yourself. There was a young boy this week. I was, um, we, were, we were just kind of hanging out a little bit, and I was talking to him. And I know his dad really, really well. And I, he said, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I told him, service. And he said, oh, that's cool. And I began, I thought, well, I'm gonna, might as well start preaching now. And so I started sharing with them some of the ideas. And I said, I think the happiest people I know are people who get service. And I'm not lying, not trying to just make more of his parents. And I said, like, your dad really gets this in the company that he owns. He really, 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 really gets this. Like the way he gets involved in helping others, he really understands this. And then I said, because could you imagine how angry he would be if he wasn't that way? And he laughed, and I laughed, and... But it's true. People who get this, and it comes from their understanding what Jesus has done for them, those are kingdom people. Think of your marriage and how it would change if you got this. Think of your workplace and how it would change if you understood this. Think about like your relationship with your kids if you understood what it really means to be a servant of a great king.